Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. You've got Vikram here from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our 26th podcast. On this episode, Faisan and I discuss our time at the CTO Summit at the NASDAQ market site from a couple weeks back. This was a great conference because technology leaders from startups to larger companies congregated to talk about managing and scaling tech teams. We talk about software processes, distributed teams, how deployment is the main cause of all software failures and a whole bunch of other interesting software development topics. Just as a warning, there isn't a lot of crypto content on this one, but we thought our learnings from the conference were worth highlighting. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. Thanks. Hey everyone, you got Vikram here from Quantlayer. I'm also joined by Faison, known as The Wizard. Happy New Year, Faison. How's it going? Happy New Year to you and everyone as well. Uh, it's going good. How was your New Year's? It was an interesting one. So I recently moved to Manhattan and I thought that I would do the whole uh, ball drop thing, you know, go to Times Square, see the ball drop yeah. since I'm here. Yeah. And it was a hell of an experience. So it was like in the 40s and raining all day. And so, <laughs> you know, you line up for nine hours. They had, you know, music and whatnot. I was very impressed by the way they managed the crowds. There was always like passageways to walk emergency vehicles to get by like when the event was over you're able to get out of midtown within like 10 minutes yeah so that was cool the craziest thing that happened though was so obviously the best place to watch the ball drop especially when it's raining is from one of the restaurants or hotels near Times square near the stage mm-hmm. and one of them happens to be a mcdonald's and uh, someone was selling tickets for a seat in mcdonald's which basically gets you you know a place to sit indoors uh, access to a bathroom which is important if you're going to be out yeah. for nine ten hours Yep. And unlimited McDonald's. Uh, and I just, <laughs> I just thought like the idea of paying $300 for, you know, all you can eat McDonald's New Year's Eve was just, it was just a funny thing. Wait, I don't um, get it. Is but, it this, was a sc- this was a scam or like this was... I'm not sure. So there okay. are a lot of scammers that are, like sell you stuff. So basically they, they block off the area and there's specific entrances that you can come in from. And so there'll be lines, you know, to enter the, the general area near Times Square. And uh, there are scammers that are selling you tickets for stuff that are invalid, but there's also legitimately, you know, a lot of the businesses in that area sell tickets like that because they can make a lot of money because that space is at a premium. So I don't know whether it was a scam or not, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if McDonald's was selling seat space all day because those businesses in that area, you can't just come and go. You do have to have like a wristband or a pass for like the hotels and restaurants in the area. So I think they do switch to like a day pass model. Okay, um, that's hilarious because I, I wouldn't expect that would look great for like McDonald's brand, but I guess on for that night, it's so crazy there. I guess it makes sense for them. Yeah, so, you know, I, I guess I should I can maybe follow up in the show notes to see whether it's something they really <laughs> offered or it was a scam. Yeah. Uh, but and I just, just thought it was just funny. just for context, like how much is a slice of pizza and a hot chocolate? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so that's the other thing. So I was talking about the crowd control. So basically what they did was all the avenues... The streets east-west were completely clear so that people could get in and out easily. And they would just basically make these little boxes of people in between the streets. And so once you get a spot and you're in one of those boxes, if you leave, you can't get back in. Like they close it off once it's full. And so 
there were people that were literally just coming up to the fence and selling hot chocolate and slices of pizza and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what a pizza cost, but I paid five dollars for a lukewarm hot chocolate, <laughs> <laughs> and also five dollars for a very like literally the worst hot dog you'll ever have in New York. It was like unwarmed bun, like the cheapest roll you get for like, you know, grocery store pre-cooked hot dog meat. And then it was supposed to be a chili dog and it was literally just canned beans on the top. That sounds (laughs) $5. But anyway, (laughs) uh, that was my New Year's. Cool. Yeah. And a couple weeks back, you were at the, uh, one thing being cool in Manhattan, I mean, you were in, it's not like you just moved to New York. You had been in Brooklyn before and you had just moved to Manhattan, Right. right? Right, right. I've been, yeah, I've been in the general area for, you know, approaching two years now. Yeah. But yeah, more relevant stuff at Times Square. Uh, so at the NASDAQ market site building on December 18th, actually, they had the uh, CTO summit. So this was a, a conference where they had about, I believe it was actually exactly 20 speakers. Um, all and CTO you know, here is chief technology officer, right? Chief technology officer. Exactly. Yeah. So it was, you know, tech leads, CTOs, technical managers, essentially, you know, people with a technical background in a managerial role. Speaking about their, you know, experiences, and what made the crowd interesting was that it, w- it was somewhat management focused. But the criteria for a t- ticket, even as an attendee, was that you had to be technical. Okay, that's interesting. So there were not a lot of like fluff management talks. They were all very sort of tech focused and coming from a background of like leading teams of developers. Yep, CTO is an interesting role because other C level roles like CEO is typically like the head of the company, the main salesperson, right? They're they're selling the company, not necessarily like selling product, although they might do that too. Yeah. Um, but their role is kind of, it's not like the same in every company, but if you, someone says they're CEO, you kind of know what they do. COO, yeah. that one's a little weird too. They can do like all kinds of stuff. CTO, you kind of understand what that is. It's like the chief technical officer. They're probably in charge of like hiring engineers, maybe they're in charge of... Yeah architecture. They're probably not coding that much, but we've met CTOs also that actually code quite a bit. There's always kind of interesting, like when someone says they're CTO, what, uh, what that involves. Yeah. And to that point, you know, there were 20 speakers and I think one of them was CTO of a two person startup, uh, who had mm-hmm. run many bigger companies. And then on the bigger side, there were people managing over a thousand engineers. Like to that point, it really is like coding on one end and a high level management role on the other. And, and, a lot of the talks were about how management changes as you traverse that spectrum. Yep. Another, you know, big topic of conversation, just as an aside, was uh, everyone was talking about remote work, which I thought was interesting. That that's oh, yeah? something that's on everyone's minds at these bigger companies. So this is by remote work, meaning like their engineers are not co-located at the headquarters, or they live at home and they exactly um, you know join via Slack and and Zoom conference calls and stuff like that. Yeah, so there there was a, one of the, actually more than one of the speakers addressed with this, but there was this idea of like, you know, there's the traditional office where everyone is on site and you might have like work from home days, but you're sort of an outsider if you're doing that. Yep. And then there was the idea of like, you know, you might have teams that are like semi-remote or it's more so of like a headquarter and satellite office situation where, you know, Google has a Mountain View office and they have a Boston office. And you generally go on site in the Boston office and you go on site in the Mountain View office and they Mm -hmm. might collaborate across offices, but it's still essentially not a truly remote scenario. And then like true remote was, they use the word distributed, where it's not just that the location doesn't matter, but like the whole team can be legitimately anywhere um, with limited on-site interaction. 
Cool. That was probably a really interesting topic. I know we've talked about it as well. It's just, how do you, like, how can you make sure work gets done, gets done really well when everyone's not in the same room? That's like a, that's one of the fundamental issues with remote work, I imagine. So uh, there's probably a bunch of other like nuanced stuff that came up during this conference too. Yeah. And there was, there was a number of speakers that did address that. And uh, what I'll do is I'll just, you know, obviously there were 20 speakers, so I don't want to make this a, a recap of every single talk. Yeah. But uh, I'll just go through and uh, highlight some of the ones that were I found interesting. So it was a single track conference, which I, I love. I hate like missing out and stuff when you have multiple things going. Yeah, uh, it was a one day event, and so they had five blocks of four speakers uh, with networking and snacks in between. So it was pretty action packed. Yeah, you know, that's a lot of eight, talks. Yeah, wrap up at seven. Yep, with the networking and all, and then I'm always on the lookout. You know, having been to so many dev meetups where you get pizza. Yeah, I always love conferences, meetups where they go above and beyond on the snacks department. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the highlight for me of this conference was the little appetizer trays they brought around. They had little bite-sized chicken waffles with a little bit of maple oh, syrup. Nice. So that was props to them. Isn't that funny though? Like every tech meetup, the default is pizza, so we always remember meetups that don't have pizza. Yeah. Like there was yeah. a hardware meetup in Boston that we both went to that had like a whole bunch of Middle Eastern food. Yeah, um, like hummus and make your own falafel. Type yeah, thing. Literally years of doing this, like less than five places have not had pizza. Yeah. We went to that uh, young entrepreneurs thing or young. I don't. I don't remember the meetup, but I remember the crab cakes. Let's yeah. just say that. <laughs> right. Well, that was actually um, a finance meetup. That wasn't even tech. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, getting back to the talk. So it kicked off with uh, Elliot Horowitz, who runs the technical side of things at uh, MongoDB. And, you know, so he started off uh, very early and his talk centered around there's this like developers tend to have a negative reaction to the idea of like process. There's this yeah. thought that like process gets in the way of like doing quality work at times like because you then work for process rather than for results. But his talk was, I, I thought, a very like measured approach to how do you integrate process? Because when you're at two people, like he was like, just ship code, don't do anything, just like write code. If it works, great. But, you know, toward, you know, more recently, he's been managing over 300 engineers. So he basically laid out a roadmap of what your documentation should be, project management should be, how detailed your roadmaps for both product and like specifications should be yep. when you're at two, five, 20, 150, and 300 engineers. Wow. Yeah. And he also broke the like those topics down into like, you know, how you need to look at the problem and how you need to convey the problem, the solution, the design and the actual code. Because again, two people, like we can just talk about it over the phone and then get to coding. When you have 300 people, the decisions are happening at one level. The implementation is potentially a few levels down. And so you need to be able to convey, you know, the problem and the solution, the design to the people writing the code. So I thought that was an interesting one. So do you have any interesting examples from that one? Like, Okay, two, you gave, it's pretty clear why like two is kind of just just do it, you know, write code, see if it works, yeah. you know, continue. But I don't know, say like 20 versus 300, like what, what might be the difference there? Yeah, so the, I think the big difference with 20 versus 300 was at, at 20, someone at the CTO level still knows all of their engineers personally okay. and can probably spend some of their time understanding their architecture. Like we are going to use Elixir and we're going to use Postgres and we're going to, you know, have an umbrella application and do things this way. Um, when you have 300 engineers, you may have you know six or seven or 10 separate teams 
that are working on totally different problem spaces, like, you know, web versus some sort of uh, machine learning. And so you're, you're now no longer like, you're no longer making tech stack decisions. You're no longer making design decisions. You're just managing the people that are making those decisions. So how you arrive at those, like how you inform those decisions and how you have to understand why those decisions were made changes. And it really comes down to having more process around getting from the problem to the code. Yep. So it was really just, uh, you know, he had examples and slides about going from very informal documentation to like much more like essentially quarterly meetings around discussing this is what the spec for this, you know, feature is going to be. Okay. After that, uh, Maria uh, Belosova of uh, Grubhub spoke. Yep. And this one was an interesting, so her topic was uh, distributed teams. And it was interesting for two reasons. So one, they have a you know very large, truly distributed team, and by that I mean you know going back to the example of the three different levels of remote, truly anyone, like someone from one office can be working with someone from another office on the same project. Okay. But what was interesting here is so they have this large distributed team. They have uh, you know hundreds of engineers, and because of the, the you know they've made a lot of acquisitions. Like they recently acquired uh, Foodler. So you have entirely separate teams in certain locations that you now have to integrate into this distributed system where people are not working face to face. Okay, interesting. And is Foodler Foodler like that as well, or that's what made it? More uh, they complex? were mo- mainly based out of a single location, I believe, Chicago. Okay, um, but I, you know, don't quote me on that. Yeah. So how does that work? Yeah. So her talk got a little bit uh, technical, and. Essentially, there was this idea of the matrix of responsibility. And so, first of all, for any given initiative, you have a triad. So that's one person from product, one person from business, and one person from engineering that are responsible for that initiative, not for a location or for a given team or anything like that. Okay. So, you know, a specific initiative gets a product, a business, an engineering person, and most of their triads are actually distributed. So a key point is it's not just that your developer is remote, but like at a management level, at a decision-making level, they're distributed. And just to clarify initiative, does that mean like a new feature? Does it mean, oh, we're going to add uh, uh, support for X? didn't go into the details of how okay. they break up the business responsibility. Uh, I think, you know, that might be, yeah. So so I don't know specifically, but for the purpose of conversation, we can treat it as a new feature. Or I think they did speak in terms of like, they have the, you know, the customer facing side, they have the restaurant facing side, yep. they have the, all the like logistics that has to be managed. So I think there are different sections of the business in that sense. Yep. So I think the initiatives break down within those departments. Um, but that's as much as I can speak to that. But so the idea was at the top level, you have a triad that is responsible for a, a specific initiative. And so you get product, business, and engineering on the same page with essentially one person having ownership of that initiative from each department. Mm -hmm. And then there was this idea of the matrix of responsibility. So across each initiative, you'll have a triad, and then that triad will have a team that has, you know, senior level, lower level people across each discipline. And, you know, for engineering, for product, for business, and then that becomes becomes your team. And so... They're, you know, at Grubhub, I forgot how many engineers they said they had, but it was at least in the hundreds and they've, you know, they're, they're legitimately uh, completely distributed using this model. And then uh, the, after that, we had uh, Mike Buford from uh, Greenhouse uh, who spoke and he had an interesting take on uh, 
this idea of a management review. Okay. So basically at, at a technical level, so he, he gave the example that uh, oftentimes when you'll have publicly traded companies will have board meetings, there might be a public meeting and then a private meeting. And the public meeting, you know, it's stuff that can be shared with, you know, the CEO employees. It can be more broadly be shared. And in the private meeting, they'll discuss sensitive topics like should they fire the CEO, you know, management team, things like that. Okay. <laughs> okay. And so essentially, uh, he created something, you know, he called it the management review, where it's the board meeting meets agile. So you have this idea of a public and private meeting with your like lead devs uh, and things like that. So as the CTO, he'll have these like, you know, public meetings with the the dev leads and whatnot about what's going well, what's not going well, stuff that can be shared. And then there'll be private meetings that are around like if people need to be let go, performance reviews, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I thought and he having the basically having these on a regular cadence improves morale, improves people's understanding of what they need to do to perform well, uh, whether or not they're meeting expectations, you know, things like that that are really important, especially as like a technical contributor. Yep. And then uh, after that, there was a topic called uh, 17 Things That Have Bitten Us by uh, Bjorn Freeman Benson. And, you know, who has worked at New Relic and Envision, some pretty legitimate companies. And his talk was hilarious because he basically just talked about 17 things that he had done wrong and like the, what the fallout of those were. Okay. And obviously I won't, I won't go into all uh, 17, but the, the first one was deployment is the main cause of downtime. Okay. He's like, systems don't go down if you leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> they tend to go down a lot more when you mess with them. Right. And, you know, he just gave a number of examples of when, uh, you know, in the process of doing deploys, they broke the system. And then uh, another one that I thought was funny was uh, always use UUIDs. So, you know, he gave an example of, you know, by default, a lot of times people use uh, sequential numbering systems provided by their database for like identifying uh, rows inside of a database. Mm -hmm. And the moment you partition a database or dealing with, you know, multiple databases, you can run into problems because your identifiers won't be unique. And he was just giving examples of how at New Relic, they had a customer that bought another company. And so they had one of their customers on one database partition and another customer on a different database partition. And customer A bought customer B and wanted to migrate the account and ran into a ton of issues because there were ID overlaps. Right, right, yeah. right. So just so people are understand, what's a UUID versus a non-UUID? Yeah, ID? Uh, good question. In a database uh, table, every item is a you know essentially a row, and that has to have some unique identifier. And so often for a given table, you'll just use a sequential number. You know, so the first one might be one, then two, then three. Uh, a UUID is a larger alphanumeric string, like basically that's created from some uh, random process. So the chances of there being a repeat are infinitely small. Yep. And so that way you can generate these unique identifiers in two different databases or 50 different databases and not worry about collisions because you're not incrementing on two different systems that don't talk to each other. Yeah. So like if you consider a users table, for example, with two users in it, so Vikram and Faison are in the quant layer, you know, users table. My ID is like one, yours is two. And then Google buys yeah. us 
And there's already some other users in their table that have one and two. Like, how do you yeah. do that? I mean, that's a very user small ID like kind of, Sergey and user two right, is Larry. Yeah, and Larry, right? Yeah, so we, some, have a, right. we have <laughs> we a have a conflict. conflict. Right, right. Um, <laughs> I guess that means we got to take over Google. I think that's basically the uh, the the outcome of that. I don't know about that, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and so there were there were a number of uh, other like hilarious stories. Again, this is Bjorn Freeman Benson. Hopefully, he posts this talk because it was all seventeen points were were really funny. And then uh, there was yeah, there was another great talk by uh, Johnny at Mapbox, and basically he didn't say explicitly, but it looked like he was a power lifter or you know some some sort of a lifter, and his whole basically he used the analogy of uh, lifting as a comparison with setting your team up for failure. So basically he talked about how uh, when you lift, the goal is, you know, you lift, then you have to like recover. And the way you make gains is by pushing yourself a little bit beyond what you were comfortable with each time. And so basically he he uses this technique at his company for managing his uh, staff by basically whenever they're setting targets, he'll stretch them a little bit beyond what he thinks everyone will be comfortable with. And then, you know, after the fact, but it's still attainable and, you know, they tend to hit those targets and then, you know, you've increased the the capabilities of your team because now the morale is high. They've pushed themselves a little bit technically. So their capabilities are higher. Yep. And then a big piece of that was building in time for recovery, which was like cleaning up technical debt, uh, you know, not doing that like every sprint, things like that. And so it was an interesting topic. It was an interesting analogy. And it was one of the talks that was met with, you could tell a little bit of resistance from the audience. Oh, yeah. Because some of the examples he gave were were around having a busier sprint. Like, you know, maybe someone has to do more than 40 hours. Yeah. You're pushing people a little bit. And there was definitely some resistance to that one, which I found interesting. So just to clarify the analogy, analogy is basically in like weightlifting, you do a little, like if your max is like 225 and something, you try to, um, you, instead of doing 80% of it, maybe you do 85% of it during like your training. And then slowly your your max will increase, I guess. So in the case yeah, of this. Like you, you push yourself a bit and then he had like the delayed onset muscle soreness, the DOMS. Yeah. <laughs> and then once you have that, you like have some recovery and then basically that recovery time is what helps you become stronger. Okay. And so his thing was like, if you aren't getting the delayed onset muscle soreness and the recovery, you're not getting the hypertrophy, like you're not getting better. Yeah. And so the, the idea was you need to push your team just a little bit so they have that little bit of soreness, but make sure you give them the recovery time and your team will get better. So like with this topic, this one's super interesting because I can see how you could want to apply this stuff to yourself, right? But the moment you try, you're trying to get other people on board too, that's a little harder. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So did he have any like, I don't know, suggestions or techniques he uses to get people on board? No. Okay. I think I got the impression that, you know, he's not running like a thousand person team. So this isn't like he's telling his managers to push people and then something maybe gets lost in translation. And, you know, this is him with the team he works with directly. And so I think having that rapport and knowing people directly probably makes a big difference. Yep. It's a it's an interesting analogy because like when you do want to pick up a technical topic, just talking about my own experience, like say for the first time I was learning Elixir, right? I would have to put in more hours than I typically would in order to be able to be on like a level playing field with anyone else who pro- actually programs in it full time. It's just the nature of the beast. It's like 
if you want to learn something new, you can't just be like, okay, every I'm going to do it for a little bit every day and then I'll get it. Like you typically, at least for me, maybe other people can do that. I can't. Like for me, I just yeah. have to be all in like very quickly and then just deal with the consequences, which is like, oh my God, I've spent all this time doing this for like two weeks, uh, but I got a lot out of it. Yeah. And I agree with you. That's generally my process as well. I think the resistance comes from, you know, in parts of the industry, there's this idea of like always doing crunches and people are consistently pushed beyond a reasonable work schedule. Yep. So there's a little bit of like a, a reflex against anyone saying like, sometimes you got to do more than 40 hours. Yeah. And then this, the second piece is I think a lot of people believe very strongly that your like person, like your professional development should be able to occur within those 40 hours at work, right. which I think is debatable, but I, I see where they're coming from. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, so I think those two items were where the, you could feel some resistance. Got it. And then, uh, Another really interesting talk, and this one was not technical at all, but it was just fascinating, was uh, Edith at LaunchDarkly, which is a feature management system, uh-huh. didn't talk actually at all about uh, anything technical. It was really more one of those like motivational stories. So Edith is a ultra runner. And so her story was basically about, you know, I think she's run over 50 marathons or something crazy like that. Wow. And over a dozen 50 mile races. And it was about uh, basically running her first 100 mile race, uh, which I didn't even know was something people did for fun. <laughs> or, <laughs> but uh, apparently this, this is the thing that happens and people do it. And it, it, was, it, was just, it was just fascinating because there's all these concerns about like eating and drinking water and refueling and managing your energy, you know, taken to the extreme because a hundred, you know, a hundred miles is a crazy amount to run right. in the mountains yep. in like Colorado. And then, uh, after that, uh, Lena Reinhardt from uh, circle CI mm-hmm. spoke. And so this talk was much more around, uh, communication. So, you know, in the programming world, you have places that have really good cultures and really good communication. And I'm sure we've all seen our like fair share of like somewhat toxic environments. And so, the talk was just basically examples around how to uh, manage communication, uh, be tactful, have empathy, uh, and gave a lot of specific examples. It's a pretty good talk, mm-hmm. but uh, we were introduced to a new word that I guess most closely uh, translates to tact. And I'm not going to pronounce this right because it's German, but uh, it's finger spitzengefühl. Okay, what's it supposed to mean? <laughs> the closest thing is. Uh, it translates to is uh, tact. Okay. I think it has a more literal uh, German meaning. There were a number of like examples of German phrases that she gave. Like, uh, I think something was like talking a meatball into your ear when you're just like, like just talking at someone. Okay. <laughs> and not listening. And there were, there were a lot of, of funny ones like that. And then uh, that was followed by uh, Michael at CodePath, who spoke about diversity in tech and. I was really impressed by his talk for a number of reasons. You see a lot of these talks that just, like speaking frankly, a lot of times we'll just use like buzzwords or just pay lip service to diversity and the people that are for it get behind it and then it turns certain people off because they just want to hear technical topics. But I thought he understood his audience and did a really, really good job because everything he spoke about was uh, data-driven. And so what they do at CodePath is essentially work with bigger companies, like a lot of the you know big tech companies are their clients, in helping create uh, like evaluation-based hiring practices. Mm-hmm. 
And so some of the, like one of his, the big takeaways was uh, that the top student at an average school is better than the average student at a top school. And this was supported by the data at like companies like Netflix and whatnot on the, you know, like objective programming examinations that they give. Uh, just uh, which was again, the top student at an average school is better than an average student at a top school. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So his point was that, you know, he had everyone in the room raise their hand, uh, like how many people were programming by the age of 14 and most of the room raised their hand. So, you know, so his point was that like the room has a potentially skewed view of like what makes a good programmer. And then he really went into like a data driven, like this is what we've seen at all these big companies of what actually makes a good programmer and like dispelling some of the myths. And it was really just focused around, hey, you should be looking at people at other than like these top five schools because our data shows that there's a lot of good uh, talent out there. Yeah. Uh, you should be looking at people who got into programming a little later, but like these are indicators that they're going to ramp up very quickly and be good. You know, things like that, like very like data-driven and practical ways that you can increase your hiring pool Yep, uh, and like actually improve your results. That's cool. Yeah. So I was, I was impressed by that talk. I thought it was one of the best done talks on that topic. Yeah, the data-driven stuff is interesting because uh, you're right. Like the this topic can get pretty divisive. And um, you it gets know, divisive yeah. because people's knee-jerk reaction is like, well, they see it as a form of affirmative action. And, and then what ends up happening is people think that people are getting hired that are less qualified. And it sort of fractures the discussion at that point. Right. So if like you started programming before you were 14, you know, maybe you have that bias already when you should probably put that aside because there's actually plenty of examples where we have, you know, people starting programming later that right. are actually going to be good too. Right. And here's a methodology to find them. Like, cool. so that was what was cool. And then uh, another person that spoke was uh, Gene Barmash at uh, Komodo Health. Yeah, I, I met Gene. Uh, and Gene's a great a- guy. Like we... Uh, we went to, he runs this CTO meetup here in the CTO school meetup in New York They meet once a month on Mondays. Basically people, uh, uh, CTO types, VP of engineering types get together and talk about like a particular topic that week. Um, really nice guy. Um, so that was cool. What, what, what did he talk about? So his was about feedback and, uh, he opened it up very interestingly. So he, he recently was working at Compass, uh, and was apparently let go. And his whole thing was like, I thought I was doing well. I realized that I was getting feedback that I was not really listening to or not responding to. And I was let go. And that was, I don't know if it was a wake up call or, you know, I don't put words in his mouth, but essentially like that drove him to thinking about this topic and how one should give feedback and also uh, how one should uh, receive feedback. And he basically broke it down into, you know, there's three types of feedback. There's appreciation, like you did a great job. There's coaching and there's evaluation. And uh, he also gave examples of things that are people do wrong when receiving feedback. Like they tend to be knee-jerk reactions when people are receiving feedback that they don't like. Mm-hmm. One of which that stood out to me was this idea of wrong spotting. When you're given feedback that you don't like, you tend to try and look for things that were wrong in that statement and not what was right. Okay. And then just fixate on that. Like you were wrong about this, so all the rest of your feedback is wrong. Oh, okay. So, you know, someone says you need to be doing more of X and you disagree, therefore the rest of their criticisms are wrong. Is it like that? Or you're you're ignoring yeah, like yeah, exactly. The, okay. Like let's say like let's say you are driving on the track and I'm your instructor. 
And the one thing you know you're very good at is like maintaining vision, like keeping your eyes up. And we get done and I'm like, you were nervous. You didn't give a good point by, you were very uh, like late in your breaking zones and you need to look up a bit more. Okay. And you just are like, look up a bit more. I like all my other instructors have told me my vision is really good. So obviously you're wrong about like the breaking and the, the other stuff. Right. Like you're not, you're not getting what I'm, what I'm saying. Okay. Got it. And, and so the, you know, that would be uh, an example. Is that a thing that drivers need to pay attention to uh, looking up? That's actually the most important thing. When you say look up, you mean like look forward at the road or like what would someone be doing if they're not looking up? Uh, however far you think you need to be looking, you need to be looking farther ahead. So especially in driving on normal roads, you tend to, to get into the habit of just uh, looking sort of around the car, like the car ahead of you distance. Yeah. Or if you live in New York, looking for potholes directly ahead yeah. to dodge them. But what ends up happening is if your line of sight is very short and you're on a track, uh, you're covering that distance very quickly. So your driving becomes very reactive. The farther ahead you look, the it tends to smooth you out a lot more because you're looking past the apex. Like Because you're going so fast and you're at the limit of your grip, you've essentially committed to what's going to happen for like the next couple hundred feet. So there's no point looking at that. You need to be looking farther ahead at the things that you can actually influence. Yep. And this, the second side effect is because you're looking farther out, you tend to be smoother. And so the vision is pretty much the single most important thing gotcha. in driving like smoothly. If you, you'll actually, if you ever spot someone with a nice car and they have a bit of masking tape at the middle of their windshield, that's someone that drives on track because people actually tape off their windshield, like just a little marker to train themselves to look not below that spot on the windshield. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then uh, another speaker was uh, Ushashi uh, from Mode Analytics. This was another cool, cool talk because she basically talked about how she uses, so she started taking improv a little while ago and uh, claims that she didn't used to run very good meetings. And after taking improv, like her meetings are so good that like people come and like take notes on how they can make their meetings better. And, you know, basically drew a lot of parallels between how you, you know, the attitude that you have going in into improv around like, yes, and, and also how the, the story gets developed and how you can take, take that attitude uh, into meetings to make them much more engaging. Okay. What was also funny about this was that right as she was speaking, the alarm tone, like the alarm test, I guess they decided to do the alarm test. So like arbitrary intervals, the alarm would go off. Um, <laughs> and she had to like think on her feet and work around the talk, which I thought was, was perfectly timed. Oh, that's pretty funny. And she claims she didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> and then uh, another talk that I thought was interesting, and you know, this is not something that I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about, but uh, Kwame, who has a consultancy called uh, Magnetic, where they, he's basically a hiring consultant, and you know, he's talking about making hiring a core competency, and how you need to, you know, budget for that both in terms of time and money. You have to really like nail down the process that you have for screening candidates. Yeah. But more importantly, it's not just about like your interview questions. You need to see like the people that you have performing those interviews and those screening tests. You actually need to measure their performance, find who the best is, and then figure out what process you can extract from them. So, you know, the idea is if you have 10 people that do like the first round technical interview and yep. one of your people has a much better like interview to, to hire ratio, 
or you could say interview to like good hire ratio, you need to find out what they're doing and incorporate that into your process. And, you know, he had this idea of like a multi-stage like feedback loop of you need to get this piece right, this second piece right, and like how you build the pipeline. But he also addressed the idea of, you know, there's a motivation feedback loop, like the people that do well at interviews and they get people hired and those people turn out to be great. There's a you know very positive feedback loop there. And by figuring out what practices they have mm-hmm. and imparting that on the rest of your team, you can, you know, make some of your worse interviewers better by like changing what's a negative experience to a positive one. Gotcha. So he works with like he runs his own consultancy and like works with companies to improve their hiring practices. Yeah, exactly. So he'll come in and help you build that hiring pipeline. Gotcha. Yeah. And he was a great speaker. And then after that was uh, Debbie Madden, the founder of Stride Consulting. And I just really liked her talk. Her like speaking style is very no nonsense. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was basically about how to retain devs and when to let them go. Mm -hmm. This one is another one of those where like, there's a trend in the industry, like people don't like the to say, you know, there's such a thing as 10x developers or things like that. But she basically had the slide that you have your A players, your B players, your C players, and your B C players. And so there's basically this matrix in terms of like technical capability. You know, we'll put technical capability on the y-axis and on the x-axis, like how well. Like they fit with the team, they work with others. Like how well do they actually work with your team in terms of enhancing the team as a whole? And so at the, you know, at the, obviously the, the top of the Y and X, you have your A players, the people that are really good individual contributors and enhance the team. And then uh, you had your C, which is bad at both. And then your B were the, uh, you know, the people that can be improved with either some coaching, either it be technical or or otherwise, mm-hmm. and then the BC players were your your traditional like toxic 10x developer, you know the people that might be very high on the technical skill set but just are a net negative impact to the team for whatever reason, whether it's cultural yep. or they refuse to write documentation or it's it's, it's a well addressed topic. You know, this reminds me a little bit of, uh, so Neil Gaiman, he's a he's an author, he's written like Sandman, American Gods. He freelanced early on in his career and he, I think during one of his, one of his kind of graduation speeches, uh, he said something like, along the lines of uh, what makes a successful freelancer. And I guess this can apply to like employees too. The three things are basically the work is good, they're easy to get along with, and they deliver work on time. And you don't even need all three. Two out of three is fine. People tolerate how unpleasant you are if your work is good and you deliver it on time. Yeah. So her idea was the same about like net team productivity. You don't need all A players. And uh, even the C players can become B players with coaching. And A players sometimes become B players if they're on the wrong project. And it, it was a very like insightful and I thought pragmatic approach to, you know, it's not just that like some developer is perfect. It changes over time. People can be improved. People get burned out. And so that, that really tied into like when to let people go. And it was around like the BC players just have to be fired. The C players need to be put on a performance improvement program. And the A players just give them what they want. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then the B players, um, here are things you can do to help them become A players. And it was funny. She gave the example of like, you know, one of our A players, like she uh, we just was like 
in a meeting. I was like, if you could have anything, like, what do you want? It was like professional development budget. She's like, done. That's like a thousand dollars. No brainer. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. You know, this is funny because coming from finance, I would say that, okay, the A player stuff, it strikes me because there's like a difference in personality and I just wonder why it is. So the A player in finance gets the same thing. Like if you're a trader and you just kill it one year, you can ask for like whatever you want. They're much less likely at the trader level to like keep you on if you're a bad performer. And performance is just measured by like your returns, right? Yeah. Maybe if you're an analyst or something where the returns aren't necessarily tied to your day-to-day work, like you analyze companies, you talk to management teams and stuff like that. You know, there's some coaching involved there that, you know, someone who like forgot to ask a question or forgot to like cover this important topic, you know, they can be coached a bit. But the whole like, let's keep them on longer than we should. And maybe that's not even the right way to think about it. But in tech, it seems to be much more prevalent. Like people are given like a longer amount of time to like get better than I remember it being in, in traditional finance. Yeah. And I think the example with the B players was, you know, essentially she's like all your junior devs are B players um, because they should be like a good fit for the team, but they're not going to have that level of contribution. And I think in tech specifically, if someone has the potential for improvement on a technical level, a three month or six month plan will get them there. And I don't know if that's true for trading. Yep. You know, if someone is losing you money, I don't know what can you do to trade, get them to a point where they're suddenly a moneymaker. Whereas tech, it's really a matter of, experience and acquiring certain skills. Yep. So it's much there's a much more like straight path to improvement. Yep. The, I, I will say there were some PMs that were, you know, had more patience for traders. If someone is losing money and the the market is getting destroyed, that's like one set of things. If someone is constantly making the same mistake over and over again, that's another set of things. Like say you uh you trade Microsoft, right? And you've lost money on Microsoft, you know, five times in a row. And the sixth time you want to put a trade on in Microsoft because you you were like, I deserve to be like people do think like this. They end up it's it's really bad, but people can end up thinking like this. Oh, like I've I've lost so much money in Microsoft. All I need to do is just like get back to flat and that'll that'll be okay. And like that those are warning signs that that person probably cannot be fixed. We gotta let him go. Stuff like uh, you know, you lost money a bunch of times. Well, we just will cut back on how much you can trade next. We'll make your stops like instead of 5%, 2%. There's like things you can do like that. But yeah, this, I mean, from what you were talking about in terms of uh, what Debbie was saying, that sounds pretty interesting with respect to like, like if you give junior devs enough time that are capable of yeah learning potential t- technical topic, they'll, they can do that. Yeah, it was very much like, here's the people, just give them what they want. Here's in these cases, this is what these people need. Here's the case of like, give them a chance, but probably they're not going to make it. And here's the like, just get rid of them. Yeah. It was, it was a very specific set of advice. Yeah. And then another notable item was, so Andrew from Parsley uh, also spoke on distributed teams. You know, a lot of the same things we've talked about around how like you make a team truly distributed. But, you know, he took his inspiration basically from Linux. It's one of the early and largest fully distributed uh, pieces of software. And it's been going for a long time successfully. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, he talked about the parallels and like things you can learn from the way Linux was developed to, you know, stuff he brought into Parsley. But a specific interesting point that I thought was he talked about how Joel Spolsky built a office in New York for his developers where every single developer had like walls and a door. So they had this, you know, very expensive New York real estate 
and they gave all of their devs a room to work in like an office which in the yeah like an office which in the and not only was it an office it was not even uh like you know they have a rectangular room and the walls are parallel and perpendicular they were actually all diagonally offset so you were never in the line of sight of anyone else oh crazy yeah so it was this whole idea of like when you're doing your like deep work you need to be left the hell alone and here is like here's a good way to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the topic of like open spaces is, you know, people have talked about that a ton. Personally, open space, I'm not into it. Like I, uh, it's very difficult for me to like concentrate in like an open office type of workspace. How about you? Same. Uh, I need to be in a, a space where I'm not tempted to talk to people to get into the zone. Yep. Uh, it took me a little bit of getting used to, but I love working from home now. Yeah, but yeah, that was a setup where you have other people like around at lunchtime or whatnot, but are otherwise isolated. That sounds great. Yeah, and then the final talk was by uh, Randy Shoop of WeWork, and I thought it was really it was it was um, just a really interesting like historical set of historical anecdotes. And he he talked about three groups of people. So the first was the code breakers during World War II with the like Enigma and you know the early computers. And he just gave a lot of the, the the history behind how that work was done. The second he talked about uh you know this 60s Lockheed Martin skunk work. So when they developed like the SR71 and the U2 and all the like really crazy stuff. And then finally he talked about you know Xerox Park, which is like very famous for essentially inventing modern computing with monitors and mouse and all of that. And the other, you know, what I found really interesting about the skunk work topics is he brought up uh, at the time, the head of the, uh, the skunk works was this guy, uh, Kelly Johnson, who has his own set of rules for management. And it's a really good set of rules on engineering management about how you like shouldn't have engineers like more than a certain number of feet from like production. And you shouldn't have uh, more than a certain number of people on a team. And it's, 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 a, it's a really good like set of rules on engineering management. And I think, oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, it's really worth looking into because you could argue that, you know, Lockheed Martin Skunk Works were some of the most successful, like cutting edge aircraft are some of the most difficult things to build. And they require a tremendous amount of coordination across like very large groups of engineers. And so you could argue, you know, Kelly Johnson was one of the most successful engineering managers. And so his his rules are, are a great read. Yep. And yeah, that, that you know, those were the, the highlights for me. There were a number of, uh, you know, other great speakers that we just didn't have time to address because uh, there were 20 of them. But the networking was pretty good after as well. It's nice talking to people about not entirely technical topics that are technical. Yep. So it was a great crowd. Yep. Any kind of uh, crypto type of stuff come up during the conference? Uh, not a tremendous amount. I know at the NASDAQ, so Angie from NASDAQ was talking about upgrading old technology because obviously a lot of their systems are, are older. And she did mention that they are working on some blockchain technology, but didn't really go into the details of it. Hey, everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at QuantLayer.com. I will write back. 
And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.